Let's go. Let's go. Oh, oh did you want to? Sorry. sorry. I'll let you. I'll let you. Next time. I'm in love with you. Snap out of it. I'll have what she's having. Too many guys think of a concept or I complete them or I'm going to make them alive. I'm just a fucked up girl who's looking for my own peace of mind. Don't assign me yours. Caustic wit is my religion. I would make a great queen because I am so stubborn. I say when it comes to stardom and Lauren, there are no accidents. Hi, Karen Peterson. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 125 of Citizen Dame, the podcast where we pretend the world is wonderful, talk about how only good things happen, and uh, yeah, I mean, the sun is shining, so it's a good day, right? I'm oh, well, aren't you lucky? <laughs> oh, no, what's happening in New York, Lauren Humphrey? It is, it is just overcast and blah. Gross. Is it humid today? It's a bit humid, yes, although not quite as bad as it has been. So that's the weather report in New York. <laughs> the worst, the worst humidity I've ever experienced was when I lived in Montreal, and it was like you could see you would start off on like Monday and it would rain (laughs) and then the sky would be pretty and blue for like half a day and then you could just see it getting more and more brown (laughs) by the hour and then it would rain again on Thursday (laughs) and then it'd be pretty and blue and sometimes it would throw in a rain on Saturday as well so but yeah every Monday and Thursday it rained all summer long it was the (laughs) weirdest thing you could practically set your watch by it Uh, I mean, I come from I come from rainy climates. I grew up in New York. I lived in Scotland, so I am used to this. But also, sometimes I'm just like, can we just like, if it's rainy and cool and nice and sort of pleasant, that's that's nice. But the humidity, yeah, no fun. Nope. Yeah, but here in California, it's like, I mean, I live well. I'm staying with a friend right now, really close to the beach, um, and it's like. 70 i think maybe 74 is the high today um right now yeah right now it's 70 degrees the high is 77 and um two percent (laughs) humidity so anyway and let us know what the weather's like in your neighborhood (laughs) exciting times on uh the podcast so (laughs) Man, so Lauren, how's your week been? <laughs> stuff, stuff has happened. So surprising things. Uh, I don't know. I think that ultimately it's all going to work out. Dear God, I hope so. But um, <laughs> you know, knock on wood. But it's it's calmed down the past few days, which I am very appreciative of. So oh, let me put it that way. Very glad to hear that. So yeah, things here. I was on vacation. I actually got to go away. And it was funny when you tell people during a pandemic that you're going on vacation, they look at you like, what, you're going to sit in the living room instead of the family room? Like, (laughs) no, I actually went out of town. I went to Utah. um, And I was very careful. I drove. I, I got a new car a couple weeks ago. And the gas mileage is so much better than my old car that I was able to drive all the way from Southern California to Salt Lake City with only one stop for gas. Wow. Yeah. So, and I just went to the pump. (laughs) So I didn't have to like interact with people. 
I was very careful. The friends I stayed with, they've also been quarantining unlike most of the people in Utah who somehow think they're immune. And there was actually a letter by church leaders in Utah saying like, hey, by the way, you're not immune from the virus. Stop acting like you are. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's how bad it is. But um, yeah, it was great. It was nice to just get away and have mm-hmm. a... Instead of sitting in my living room, I was sitting in some friend's living room that I haven't seen in a while. So, yeah, that's what we do in the time of a pandemic. (laughs) So, but anyway, um, this week we are very excited because we're going to be talking about something that Lauren is going to take the credit for this, but I've also been really excited about this episode. I was going to, I was going to say you suggested this, like you, you suggested this topic. I just want to say that, like, you know, I always get excited about this, but, but you were the one that suggested the topic. Yeah. The thing is, um, so this week we're talking about Alfred Hitchcock. Woohoo. Yay. Um, and I am nowhere near the level of expert that you are on the subject of Alfred Hitchcock. However, I am a very big fan. I've seen, well, I mean, I haven't seen all of his movies. I haven't even seen all of his American movies, but I've seen quite a number of them and I really like them. And so I am not the expert, but I'm definitely a fan. And so I'm really excited that we're going to talk about talk about Alfred Hitchcock today and and his work which is very very abundant yeah he directed something like um 70 or so like 65 I don't know um yeah I think some of it depends on how you categorize things because there's a number of films that he was assistant director on or Mm -hmm. um worked on and then there are also films that are missing Right. Um, so there, he's got a couple of particularly of his early, of his early films that, you know, that they just don't exist. The, the famous one is The Mountain Eagle, which was completed and, uh, and, and everything. And he claimed it was a terrible movie, but I think, it, I think we should remember that he claimed about three quarters of his films were terrible films. <laughs> um, so, uh, but that's kind of one of the big lost films that, you know, the, the dream is to find it. And the fact, the fact is, if we ever do find it, it probably is going to turn out to be terrible, but it would still, it'll still be really exciting. So it'll be one of the earliest Hitchcock films uh, that, that we haven't gotten to see. And there are always going to be people too, when you find those old lost things that are going to be like, no, this is actually not terrible. And it's like, <laughs> you can admit that it is. It's okay. I mean, yeah, I, I've said it before. Like I, I am a huge fan of Alfred Hitchcock. I love his films. He made some bad movies. Like, there's no doubt that he made some bad movies. And I will, I can list some of the bad movies for you if you want me to. Um, <laughs> get to that, definitely. Uh, but I think that that's important. You know, great directors, great artists make bad art sometimes. And that's okay. Like, that's normal for mm-hmm. artists and people. People are not perfect. Exactly. Well, let's just start off the conversation and we're going to jump around through his filmography mm-hmm. and, and through different topics on, on the work of Hitchcock. But let's just start off with like, what is your very favorite Hitchcock film? My very favorite Hitchcock film. And I want to preface this by saying that I draw a distinction between favorite and best. Yes. Yes. Uh, there is a difference. There are films that I think are, are masterpieces, and I've talked about the, the specific film that I think is, is his masterpiece, is his greatest work. 
Uh, it is not my favorite of his. My favorite of his is The Lady Vanishes, which is a 1938 film uh, about a young woman uh, who befriends an, an elderly uh, British nanny on a train and the young woman goes to sleep and she wakes up uh, a couple hours later and not only has the nanny disappeared, but no one will acknowledge that they saw her. So the most of the film is about her basically seeking to prove that she's not crazy and trying to find her friend because she's convinced that something terrible has happened to her. And it's, it's, a, it's a funny film. Like the first 20 minutes are pretty much a screwball comedy. It's setting up all of the different characters and, and it's just, there's a lot of humor and a lot of energy to it. And then you actually get into the more thriller aspect of the film. And it's just so well-structured and so entertaining. Um, and there are, you know, it's wobbly in places, but I, I absolutely adore it. So it's, uh, it stars Margaret Lockwood and um, Michael Redgrave, who are just wonderful together. And fun fact, that was one of the very first movies I watched during lockdown, once we went into quarantine. Um, yeah. I remember we had an episode, and I think it was when the Nina was on. And uh-huh. um, we were talking about that particular movie, and I was like, hmm, I'm going to watch this today. And then I did. <laughs> And it's great. And I loved it. It was so much fun. Um, I also, I agree that there's a difference between best and favorite. And we can talk about his best films in a bit. But one of my very favorites is Strangers on a Train from 1950. That's a good one. I love that movie. And I remember the first time I watched it, I was babysitting. And so I was like high school, maybe, maybe freshman year of college. And um, uh, I had already seen Psycho and The Birds and some other ones. And I was just kind of working through like some other popular Hitchcock films. And it, I think I had just seen Throw Mama from the Train or something. Oh. <laughs> and um, so I was just like, well, I want to I wanna see the movie that this is referencing. And so I watched it and oh my gosh, I just loved it so much. And it's like, it's not scary but it's definitely intense at certain points and it's Mm -hmm. just so well done the way that it the way that it plays out and even though you can assume you kind of know where it's going there's still these twists where you're just it's just so thrilling and the performances are really good the fact that it's in black and white um i think that mysteries and thrillers are always better when they're in black and white um but it's just it's really it was definitely not my first introduction to Hitchcock, but it was, I feel like it was one of the movies where I really saw um, his mastery of craft and, and how, I mean, even though this is like middle of his career, maybe even like later half of the middle of his career, um, like I could really understand sort of what like the the anatomy of a Hitchcock film, I guess it was from from that one. Everyone talks mm-hmm. about Psycho, which is great, but there are a lot of movies he was making much earlier than that that really, um, in a way, kind of make it easy to see how he how Psycho eventually came about. I guess. Yeah, and I think that Psycho uh, Psycho is is actually in some ways kind of an odd man out for for Hitchcock like it's it's an unusual film for him in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. and we we think about it as being this this almost the perfect Hitchcock film which I I argue that it is I do think that it's his best film but um in terms of the the concerns that he's in that he uh investigates you know if you look at him as 
as an auteur in the sense that his oeuvre is tied together with a lot of different themes uh, and actors and ideas and, and concepts and everything. Something more like Strangers on a Train, which is a wrong man narrative, partially. And it's also this narrative about obsession and, um, you know, with undercurrents of homoeroticism and all of that. Strangers on a Train is actually much more uh, in keeping with a lot of Hitchcock's concerns than Psycho is, because Psycho has its own, you know, it, it, it goes farther than most of his films do. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Strangers on a Chase is such a great film. That entire, so much fun, yeah. that entire, like, basically the final act from about the beginning of the tennis game all the way through mm-hmm. to the end is just a masterpiece of suspense. Like so good. Yeah. And, and you know, and he's set up for it throughout the entire film. So well, because you know, what's at stake, you know, what, what the characters are doing and why they're doing it. And, and there's this part of you that is, is like almost rooting for everybody. You're like, Oh my God, what's <laughs> going to happen? You know, yeah. who is going to win in this race basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you kind of suspect, you know, that, that the good guy, as it were, is going to win. But at the same time, there's that sensation you almost want. You want to maintain the suspense. You want the bad guy to succeed as far as he possibly can, because if, as soon as he fails, then the movie's over. The, the suspense is, is lifted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, it's, it, that's a great film. I also, I love the fact, and this is, this is true with a lot of his films too, I love the fact that even the good guy isn't totally a good guy. Yeah. yeah. You know, like he's, he's definitely got shades of, of uh, immorality to him and it, it makes it more interesting. It makes the characters, people that um, you want to root for, but at the same time you're like, oh, but. Yeah. <laughs> yeah he, he was very good at crafting both multifaceted heroes and villains. Mm-hmm. And very few of his heroic characters are unambiguously heroic. Yeah. Uh, and very few of his villains are unambiguously villainous. And even, and, and he pushes it a lot. Um, and, you know, talking about Psycho, but some of his later films in particular, uh, really push the, the degree of audience sympathy with, with different characters. And I, at, at some point, I think we're going to talk at least a little bit about Frenzy, which is, I think, kind of the culmination of all of this. Um, but but he, he it, it's interesting because you, you want, he puts the audience in the position of wanting, like I said, wanting the villain to succeed because as long as the villain is succeeding, the story goes on and the tension builds and the suspense builds. Uh, and, and he's very good at exploiting that complicated, uh, level of sympathy in the audience. Like a lot of Hitchcock's films are about, you know, I don't want to say manipulating the audience, but it kind of is in the sense that he's forcing the audience to identify with and to root for almost figures that we wouldn't otherwise want to identify with and root for. Yeah. Complicated people. Yeah. And sometimes the really, yeah, I, I find it fascinating when you're in a situation where you want to root for the villain because that's, it's an uncomfortable place to be, but it also can be so much fun. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of his films use that. And then some of his films begin to draw that into question to kind of turn, turn things around on the audience a little bit and say like, what are you, what are you rooting for? <laughs> what are you like, why are you enjoying this almost? And again, I think that when we talk about frenzy, uh, I think that that's, it's a good example of that. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Well, let's go through uh, kind of a timeline of Hitchcock and, and sort of talk about um, the, the twists and turns that his own filmography takes. Mm-hmm. So he's got, he began his career, of course, in Britain yeah. um, and started in silent film. And it's funny because I was talking to someone recently about, we were talking about Hitchcock movies and I said something about, Oh yeah, I really need to go catch up on some of the British stuff on criterion before it's gone. And my friend was just like, wait, what? <laughs> like there's like so many people that don't even understand that he didn't just drop out of the sky and make psycho, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, um, well, we talked about this um, when we were talking about German expressionism and how he had worked with the German filmmakers too. And um, he'd been doing just so much stuff. So why don't you give us a little bit of, of background about his early the earliest parts of his career. Uh, I mean, without uh, you know, without going into his biography, for he he did a lot of jobs before he actually became a director. He was um, he wrote advertising copy. Uh, he did title cards for silent films. He did work in Germany for a period. He actually um, watched a lot of the filming of uh, Murnau's The Last Laugh, which we talked about last time. Um, and that had a, that he explicitly said that that had a huge influence on him. That that watching German films and working on on German films really did influence the way that he approached his own work uh, when he eventually became a director. So he began, you know, he did some some script writing. He did some uh, assistant work. I think that his earliest directed film. Uh, is number 13, which is uh, 1922, and that is a lost film. And it was unfinished, there's no footage left of it. I think there's some uh, frames left, and that's pretty much it. So usually what is cited as the first, quote, Hitchcock film, the first film that he really directed, is The Pleasure Garden, uh, which I think he did for Gaumont in um, uh, 1925. And that's almost immediately followed. So you got the pleasure garden, which is this melodrama. It's basically, it's a romance, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's not, I believe that the, most of the prints are not complete. So there are like, it's one of those films that you can watch, but you have to, there are, there are inserts that bridge the gap. They sort of say like, okay, this is what happens next. And then we have the rest of the footage. Um, but it's actually a really interesting film and it's worth seeking out. It's on YouTube. It's worth like seeking out for anyone who's interested in, in that degree of his early work. Um, But his next film as a director is The Lodger, Mm -hmm. which is often cited as being the first Hitchcock film. And, you know, you put quotation marks around that because what is, what is a Hitchcock film and what does that mean? But it's his first thriller. Uh, And it's a wrong man narrative. It's, um, it's, you know, it, it's very heavily influenced by German expressionism. You know, if you just turn on the lodger and, and like watch the introduction of the main character, uh, he shows up at the door and he's like casting this long shadow and he's wrapped, like his entire face is wrapped up in a scarf. All you see are these very dark eyes and like all of this, it's incredibly expressionist. And he's bringing this like aura of, of menace into this this boarding house essentially where he's he's uh, taking a room to live with this family meanwhile there are all of these murders going on in london that that um, someone is going around murdering um blonde women and so this is also the establishment of the hitchcock blonde which <laughs> i have things to say about but anyway so so the lodger is very much 
his the first thriller film and definitely the most recognizable of his British work being like, okay, that is an Alfred Hitchcock film, right? Mm -hmm. But he did a lot of different kinds of films. He did melodramas, he did, um, uh, he did social problem films, he did comedies, he did a musical. <laughs> uh, he did a musical called Waltzes from Vienna. Uh, he, you know, he I've made a box. I've that one. <laughs> it's, it's, again, not a great film necessarily, uh, but but interesting if you have if you have interest in Hitchcock's work, I think it's I think it's always interesting to watch these kinds of films because they are very different. Um, I actually really love some of his early work, so like Champagne, which is uh, 1928, and it's it's a drama slash comedy about uh, a young woman who um, who kind of loses her money or sacrifices her money and, uh, and winds up having to go to work as a, um, as a hostess, right? And that's basically the plot. But again, he creates, there's a lot of use of expressionist techniques. He creates a great deal of suspense. One of the great things that I like about some of his early films uh, is that even though they're not thrillers per se, they are, they still create this, sen this sensation of suspense. So there's a scene in his boxing film, The Ring, where the lead character thinks that his wife's cheating on him. And, and, his, and so his wife is like, uh, his, so his wife is having this party and he comes in and there's all this suspense building up of how is he going to confront her about this and what is going to happen next? Because you can firmly believe in watching this film that he's gonna kill her or that some, something violent is gonna happen. And so you, there's this creation of suspense that ultimately you know, is, is, in a, is in the service of a melodrama. It's not a murder mystery, it's not a thriller or anything like that. So, so yeah, so uh, that's, that's kind of moving into um, the sound period and out of the silent period and, and into more recognizable films like well, the original. Hold on. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, sorry, I just wanted to jump back in because I've seen um, let me just think. I've seen The Lodger, and which is actually on um, Criterion still. Yeah. Um, I think you can also get it on Amazon Prime too. But um, a lot of a lot of these are in. If they're available, they're on. They can be found on YouTube and mm -hmm. on um, on Prime and places like that because they're public domain. Right. Uh, so but when you can watch watch it on Criterion because they yeah. tend to have more cleaned up. Um, versions yeah exactly so but yeah the the lodger is such a fun movie and yeah. it's i just recently watched it for the first time i had never seen it before and it's it's just so fascinating um like you were talking about just the way that i mean it really does lay the groundwork for what we would consider a hitchcock film because there's you know there's like deflection going on there's red herrings but um but it's just and it's this mystery where you think like oh well this is really straightforward this isn't anything mysterious but then it's like takes a twist and you're like oh mm -hmm. okay interesting and and it's fun to watch a hitchcock film that is a silent movie um i think this is the only one of his silence that i've seen actually um i'm just looking through the list um but it's, it's oh sorry i was just gonna it's definitely his most famous silent uh -huh. film because because like you say it has that foundation of the hitchcock film yeah and it's fun to watch it because you still see you see all those elements that make him the director that we know 
um but without the use of a lot of dialogue and it's it uses the classic silent you know thing where there's a lot of like very expressive performing performing and the use of light and shadow and stuff um there's actually some use of color in it too which Mm -hmm. is is interesting and um it just it makes it such such a good introduction at least to i think um not just into hitchcock's films but into into really wanting to dive into his older filmography it's a it's a great one for that yeah yeah i mean like i said i i i have this this combination of like i really want people to watch these silent films and these like you know old melodramas and stuff like that because they're really interesting but also many of them are not terribly exciting Mm -hmm. uh i i do think that like the ring or downhill are very good films in themselves they're they're completely outside of what you think a hitchcock film is uh, and for that reason, I think that they've, they've kind of been pushed to the side and ignored that it's been more like, you know, uh, we, we're, we're not going to talk, this was him, you know, learning things, but it's really not. A lot of them are very mature films. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are experiments going on and he is trying different things and he's trying a lot of expressionist techniques. He's trying, you know, perspectives and canted angles and like all kinds of things. But it works like he knows what he's doing this isn't like a fledgling director who's never been behind a camera before right. uh kind of this isn't a student film you know sort of figuring out everything these are actually mature and well-made films well and part of the reason that he was so good was the fact that he was willing to experiment and try new things based on having a really good understanding and knowledge of how film works how audiences work and so it's not like he was just throwing stuff at the wall to see what stuck. He really understood people and the psychology of an audience. And so because of that, he had really, really well-formed, educated um, experiments, I guess, mm-hmm. on how to, how to push things just a little bit more, how to raise the suspense, how to make something a little bit more dynamic. So, and it was because of that innate understanding that he had that unfortunately a lot of directors they just want to make what they want to make and they don't necessarily it's not this is not an all statement but i just i see a tendency of people to not really consider the audience experience and that's not necessarily a bad thing it just depends on the director and the type of film they want to make but when you're making movies that are 100% going to live or die based on how the audience experiences it, then you have to really understand people. And he clearly did. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think these are commercial films. All of his, all of the films that Hitchcock made were commercial films. He was not trying to be an art director. Right. He was not trying to, to do art films, right? He was in like, the goal here was to get audiences in seats to watch the movie and pay for the movie. That was the whole point, right? Mm-hmm. And, and he, and like you said, he did understand the audience and he did know how to create suspense and he learned how to create suspense. So he, he tells, a, there's a famous story that he told in um, the Hitchcock Truffaut book, which is the famous interview between, um, that Francois Truffaut interviewed him in the 1960s. Uh, and, and one of the stories that he told was like suspense is showing someone setting a bomb. So you show them set the timer, you show them put the bomb together and they put it under a table. And then the family comes into the room, not knowing the bomb is there. 
and they have breakfast. And this, that is suspense because the audience knows that the bomb is there. The audience knows that the bomb is going to go off at some point. Right. And the suspense is in the fact that the family doesn't know. The people sitting at the table don't know that the bomb is there. So they're going about their lives. They're going about their business. And there's this thing that is about to completely obliterate them. And that's, that's like his example of what suspense is versus something like shock, which is where you don't see the bomb being set. And all that you have is a family eating breakfast and then suddenly the table explodes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, he, he understood how to create that sensation in the audience and, and he does it. And if you look at any of his films, you see where he's employing that just very simple, but very effective concept. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. And it's one of those things that because he was such a master of it, other people have copied, emulated <laughs> um, to varying degrees of success. Yeah. But yeah. Oh man. I'm thinking of certain scenes from movies right now. I'm just like, <laughs> oh, it's so cool. Like, oh, the shower scene in Psycho is just yeah, <laughs> so masterful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's um, famous for a reason. You know? Exactly. Yeah. So he moves out of the silent era and um as everyone else did too and goes into some other films one of which was one that he would eventually remake which is the man who knew too much i have not seen the original i've only seen the remake even though i know the original is on criterion i wanted to watch it this week i didn't have time sorry um shame but but yeah so (laughs) so this is he has like these british films before he came to uh, before he came to the States. So let's talk a little bit about some of those. Some of the British films. Uh, yeah, I mean, so you've got The Man Who Knew Too Much, which is one of the things that I like about it in terms of that film versus the remake is that it's the same plot, right? Mm-hmm. But the, it's, it's different enough that I think you can watch them both as, as independent films and enjoy them for different reasons. Um, I, I do, if I, if I were to be like, well, which one is better is like, I, the, the original British one I think is better. I think it's a tighter film, uh, and, and it employs, um, uh, I, I think it's a lot more effective in, in the kind of ambiance that it creates and, and particularly in the use of the female characters. Uh, that's, that's my opinion. You know, I think you can make an argument either way, but. Why yeah, did so, you remake it? I am not entirely certain. I don't know the history behind that. Uh, it's the only one of his films that he remade. Mm-hmm. And it's a very, like I say, if you watch the original and then, re- and then watch the, the remake, it's a very different kind of film. Uh, first of all, the remake is in color, very bright color. And, yes. it, it, it's, um, and it takes place in Morocco, I think. The initial opening is actually in Morocco. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then they end up in Paris or London. I think they finally wind up in London. Yeah. Um, and the original film, they're at, the, the family is actually in the um, Swiss Alps. Oh. And, and there's, there's some, some of it is political. Some of it is, is uh, you know, so the original um, Man Who Knew Too Much is 1934. And so you're sort of, it's making use of the political situation in Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and before the war. Yeah. Yeah. Before the war. So that, that's part of what he's up to. Um, but yeah, so I'm not entirely certain why he made the choice to to go back and to do to redo the man who knew too much with James Stewart and Doris Day, which is 
such an odd pairing for a Hitchcock film. I think it works in a lot of ways, but it's just an odd pairing. (laughs) (laughs) And like, yeah, I mean, in the original film, the mother is a sharpshooter. I think that that's, that's important to note, you know, and and then she becomes Doris Day, who's a singer. Uh, (laughs) You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. I don't know. I, I never know quite how I feel about those films. Well, it's uh. just, it's funny because just, and like I said, we're going to jump around a lot, but we'll come back to more about this particular topic. But as far as the remakes go, it's one of those things that's so funny when people just are so adamant, you can't remake a Hitchcock movie. And it's like, well, Hitchcock remade a Hitchcock movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like, and he remade... Yeah, it's, I, I don't know, man. Like, now, you whole, have to do it well and not be stupid, Gus Van Sant, but you can do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, may, maybe that's really it, that only Hitchcock should remake a Hitchcock movie or something. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe. Well, I have some thoughts on that, which, like yeah. I said, we'll come back around to in a bit. But um, Yeah, me too. <laughs> but yeah, so he does Man Who Knew Too Much. He does 39 Steps. Yeah, and, and then you begin to get into, I guess, the films that that are more recognized basically most people when they talk about uh hitchcock's british films will talk about the lodger they'll talk about the 39 steps and they'll talk about maybe the lady vanishes or the man who knew too much Mm -hmm. um and and those are sort of the the major touch points and again these are all great films uh and and they're what sort of set him up eventually to go to america the reason why he uh he eventually went to america to make rebecca and was employed by selznick um, was because he was such a success in Britain. And he, he made these films that were, were so good and so interesting. So The 39 Steps and The Lady Vanishes are kind of the one-two punch of um, his later career. And his final film in Britain was uh, Jamaica Inn, which is, again, it's like this last hurrah for Hitchcock melodramas or something, <laughs> because it is, it's, a, it's based on a Daphne du Maurier novel, and it stars Charles Lawton and uh, a Maureen O'Hara, a very young Maureen O'Hara. I think this is one of her first films. And it's about, like, smugglers in the 18th century. <laughs> <laughs> on the Cornish coast and it's completely like you're just like what is even going on here well that uh, sounds like a party it's it is a party uh I like it a lot but again it's one of those that you're like I'm not certain how to deal with the fact that Alfred Hitchcock made this film <laughs> <laughs> so I love looking at random stuff that IMDB will give you and on Jamaica Inn for the plot keywords some of the options are, or some of the, the ones that pop up as the most common are held at gunpoint, impersonation, secret identity, assumed identity, and stabbed to death. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to remember who got stabbed to death in that movie. I actually don't know. <laughs> oh, man, it's funny. And if you click to look at more, there's Woman in Jeopardy. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. 19th century hands tied behind back saving someone's life <laughs> some of these are hilarious <laughs> oh I like that I like that I, I just to just to jump backwards just really briefly I cannot I cannot get past uh, Hitchcock's British films without actually mentioning um, uh, blackmail mm which was both his last silent film and his first sound film, which I think is 
fucking cool. Uh, he made two versions. I mean, if anybody's going to do that, it's going to be Hitchcock. Yeah, he made, t- he made two versions. And I think that it was actually out of pressure from the studio because the studio wanted... Um, uh, the, the studio wanted to capitalize on the, the, the advent of sound and they were finally kind of at the point where like, okay, we can make sound films now. And Hitchcock was actually very resistant to, to the use of sound because he didn't like it. And uh, he believed the film, you know, we talked about pure cinema last, uh, last episode that he believed the film, it was all about the image, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, but so blackmail is really interesting. And if you, you can watch, um, both the, the sound version and the silent version, but even the sound version, the first 10 minutes of the film are silent. Uh, and the way that he uses sound is very unique. And, uh, cause there isn't tons of dialogue. Um, and all, most of the plot is not conveyed through dialogue. Most of it is conveyed through, um, through image and through the way that the characters relate to each other. So you see this entire story unfold primarily through the image. And most of the dialogue is just like people talking about, you know, what to have for dinner. Uh, and so it's a really interesting use of, of both sound and silence and the way that sound is used and, and the way that image is used in pairing it with sound. Uh, so I, I really, it's a nasty film and I love it for that reason, <laughs> um, but it's a, it's a fascinating film. So I really, really recommend that anyone who hasn't seen Blackmail, like go, go get it. It's, it's a very tight, intense, uh, unpleasant film in some ways, but I think one of his best British films. I will watch it today <laughs> if I can find it. Uh, so then so he moves it. into the states and starts making movies in america and the first of which was rebecca right yeah that was his first american okay which is also the only of his films ever to win best picture yes Um, although he never won best director he didn't he was nominated five times i believe and um yeah he never won um he did get a special honorary Oscar in 1968, the Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award. Mm-hmm. So that's the only Oscar he ever got. He never won a competitive Oscar, but um, that's, uh, sorry, I just lost my, okay, there we go. So um, yeah, so Rebecca, which is, um, speaking of remakes, <laughs> made and we just got pictures of it yesterday but we'll come back to that in a minute i keep saying that but we will (laughs) so um what do you think it was that um made rebecca such a hit here in the states and not just that it won the oscar but it it's one that i mean if you look at the box office by 2020 dollars it made about 109 million in the theaters which Mm -hmm. there were other movies making a lot more than that but it has had this life this longevity where most people that really like hitchcock films have seen it what do you think it was about rebecca that made it so popular uh i i think that hitchcock really did bring this sort of this british sensibility to uh to the united states and and that was actually one of the films he hated rebecca uh and one of the reasons for that is because david o selznick who's the producer on it it was incredibly controlling and was always kind of trying to impose his view on the the film and on hitchcock and hitchcock is 
fam famously a very controlling director, really wanted to be in charge what? of his set. Yeah. Uh, really wanted to be in charge of his set, really wanted to have, and, and he had a great deal of freedom in Britain, particularly by the time he's made things like blackmail. He's got, a, you know, he's, he's a popular director. He's got this sort of set and he's got a lot of control over his scripts. He's got a lot of control over the way that he films. He's got a lot of control over who he casts. And Selznick basically took that control away from him. Uh, and so, so Hitchcock hated Rebecca and thought that it wasn't a Hitchcock film, that it, it was a David O. Selznick film. Um, I disagree with that. I think that it is a Hitchcock film, <laughs> uh, and it's very obviously one, but it's such a, you know, it's, first of all, it's based on a very, it was based on a very popular novel, uh, and it's got two major stars. Um, you've got Joan Fontaine and Laurence Olivier in the leads. Uh, and then the, the supporting cast is fantastic. I mean, George Sanders is so deliciously evil. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> and gross. So you're just like, oh, I hate him, but also I really, really like him. Um, <laughs> He's so good at that, of really making you just love these terrible characters. Yeah, he's so smarmy, and, and like he just arrives, you're like, oh god, I hate him, but he's kind of hot, <laughs> but also, oh no, I'm creeped out, but also, hmm? Yeah, it's, uh, it's great. And Judith Anderson, who's, uh, who plays Mrs. Danvers, and, and is just, just such a good so villain. Good. And so, so frightening, good. but it's in some ways, it's, it's very different from a lot of Hitchcock's films because it, it is this, like, gothic melodrama, this gothic mystery. Mm -hmm. um, set in the middle of, you know, it's, whatever, 1939, 1940. So it's, it's this weird kind of nether space of, like, you feel like you've been taken back in time to the 19th century, but it's all taking place within, for them, for the, con for the contemporary period. Yeah. And I think it's just a very effective film. It's very well done. Again, it's very well structured. Uh, the most disappointing element of it is that they had to change certain things in, um, from the book because of censorship mm -hmm. and, and what the censors required of the narrative. Uh, but even then, I think that they get around a lot of the issues by keeping things somewhat ambiguous. Uh, and, and Hitchcock had to do that a lot in his American films in particular because yeah. there were just certain things that they weren't allowed to do. Yep. And when I say that Rebecca was well-received here, I mean, like, it didn't just win Best Picture. It also won cinematography, um, black and white cinematography. But then it was also nominated for a bunch of awards it didn't win. Hitchcock was nominated. Um, Laurence Olivier was nominated. John Fontaine, Judith Anderson... They were all nominated. Um, it also got in for screenplay, art direction, editing, um, special effects, and original score. So, I mean, people went crazy for this film. And I mm -hmm. think that, yeah, when you sit down to watch it, it's I, I, I can see why this is the film that really crossed over for him and made him not just the commercial director, but also someone who can craft really, really well-constructed, uh, well-received awards quality pictures too. Yeah. Even though, like, like we said, even though he never won an Oscar, a lot of his movies did get nominations for things. And I think this is where you can really see that acceptance and, and why the Academy accepted his craftsmanship as a filmmaker as well. Yeah. Um, it's really beautifully constructed in every facet the cinematography is really incredible the costumes are amazing just 
um, the production design, all of it. It's really such a, a beautifully crafted movie. Yeah, no, it, it really is. Like, like I said, I, I think that his dislike of it was, was more a result of the fact that he felt that Selznick was interfering too much, which Selznick probably was. Yeah. Um, but that it, it is, it is a great film. And, uh, and I always think that one of the things I was, I tell a lot of people when we talk about Hitchcock is you always have to take anything that Hitchcock says in interviews <laughs> with a big, big spoonful of salt. Yeah. Uh, because he was famously, I mean, this was a man who famously liked, he liked telling elevator stories, which means that he would wait for people to get on the elevator with him and he would begin telling a story and then time it. It was, and he would usually be the most gruesome or the most suspenseful, the most violent story he could think of and time it so that by the time they got to his floor, he would be right at the climax of the story and then he would walk off the elevator. <laughs> that was like this, he loved doing that. So he loved fucking with people. Awesome. <laughs> um, and, and so even like, if you read the Truffaut book, half the time, like Truffaut's asking questions and Hitchcock is either like, I can't remember that because it was like 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, or he's, he's making up lies. <laughs> like he, he lies. He explicitly lies about a number of things. You know, he makes up jokes uh, and things like that. So you always have to be really careful. And like, you know, if, if Hitchcock says, oh, actors are cattle, you have to kind of think about like, well, does he actually mean that actors are cattle, or is he fucking with Truffaut? Which he, you know, there's a little bit, you have to be careful, I think, in quoting his, his statements as, as uh, Bible verses. Oh, yeah. Oh, that hitch. Such a kidder. <laughs> but yeah, so then he goes into, so now he's, he's in America, he's fresh off of a Best Picture win, and he just makes this whole series of films that for the next basically... 25 years are the films that most people know yeah um even if they don't even if they haven't seen them if you say hitchcock they know about like uh rear window they know about dial in for murder usually psycho mm -hmm. the birds um north by northwest so let's talk just kind of as a collection that those those films like that his his really famous best known ones yeah um what are some of the qualities that you would say they all share uh i mean i think you've what you've got and and um i think that you could probably make the argument that from about 1954 to 1963 1964 so about 10 years uh he makes some of the best runs of films that you can that you can find and even then you know if you look back a little bit further and you look at so he's got spellbound which is not a great film but then notorious he's got the parodying case but then rope and so you've got all of these different films that are he's trying different things and he's experimenting with different things i think that the 1940s are really interesting because he's trying he he's trying to find different ways of positioning the camera and using space so films like lifeboat and rope and uh um, dial in for murder are single set films where they don't actually go outside of a room or an apartment or in the case of lifeboat a boat uh, and and it's it's interesting how he manages that and some of them you know they they're diff they're different qualities but um, they're it's really interesting to see how he uses the camera in those films uh, and kind of expresses some of the themes that he's very interested in you know we talk about the wrong man theme so something like North by Northwest or 
the wrong man, uh, which is a literally a wrong man movie. Um, deal with these, this idea of, uh, of falsely accused people, people who are falsely accused of murder or of, um, of criminality who are, mis you know, mistaken identity. North by Northwest is, is basically the whole thing that sets off everything that happens in North by Northwest is that the Cary Grant character accidentally summons a page boy at the same time that the boy is calling for, uh, um, uh, another man and he's mistaken for this other man and you know winds up in this international chase <laughs> which ends up with him climbing on mount rushmore which ends with climbing on mount rushmore <laughs> so you know there's all of this stuff that happens but so a lot of his films dealing with the wrong man strangers on a train is a wrong man narrative um uh, shadow of a doubt you can even make an argument as a wrong man narrative in the sense that you're not quite certain if he's the wrong man <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's that ambiguous space, uh, and, and so you've got a lot of those, you've got uh, what are basically spy thrillers, so North by Northwest is sort of a spy thriller, um, so Notorious is a spy thriller, Saboteur is a spy thriller, Foreign Correspondent, which is 1940, uh, is the film that he made after Rebecca. Um, you know, Man Who Knew Too Much is sort of a spy thriller in the sense that there's like international intrigue going on. Uh, and so you've got, but, but you've got all of these films that have very similar themes and similar depictions of um, gender relationships and sexual relationships. And, uh, and these, he, he relied more and more on big set pieces. So famously the scene on Mount Rushmore in North by Northwest, um, the, the, uh, the running across the rooftops in To Catch a Thief, uh, the sort of international locations and the man who knew too much. Um, you know, and then of course the, the big scenes, which are in some ways something like Psycho is a much more intimate film than those films because the big scenes occur in this very, these very cramped spaces. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I could talk forever about each of these films. <laughs> and, and I don't think that people want me to do that right now. Uh, but yeah, but I, I think that these, again, these are viewed as masterpieces for a reason. Mm -hmm. And I, I kind of get tired of sort of hearing about the same ones. So as much as I love Psycho, I get tired of hearing like, oh, Psycho is great. Like, yeah, Psycho is great. Vertigo, you know, Vertigo is great. Yes, Vertigo is great. Um, rear Window, North by Northwest, all of those, you know, it's, it's, these are brilliant films and they're brilliantly done, but you got to kind of stretch out a little bit more, I think, and, and sort of look at, you know, maybe why they're brilliant films, but also look at the ones that maybe you don't consider so brilliant. Lifeboat is a fascinating film. It's a very different film. Uh, the idea of the Hitchcock film, I think, is, is more is fewer and farther between than we think because we tend to just reference these particular you know quote masterpieces and not really talk about the you know 50 other films that he made right mm -hmm. um well and that's i think that's generally a problem not just with hitchcock but with film in general i mean when we talk about classics people will name all the big you know, big prominent ones, but there's so many films that get lost that no one mm -hmm. ever talks about. And, and as we switch technologies, you know, when we went from VHS to DVD, a lot of things didn't make the jump, weren't available on DVD. When we went from DVD to Blu-ray, even fewer things were available. And then now with streaming, it's interesting because you can find more things, but, um, 
with with so many places not curating their collections it's it's out there but it's hard to find but at least it's coming back and and we have access to things that we never had access to before but i think that that's just one of those one of those issues as you change technologies what people value and what they decide is important enough to continue and and to bring forward diminishes because in the in between we're also making a lot of new movies too and so it's like you have to kind of call your collection at some point i think and Mm -hmm. and hitchcock i think is a great example of that because yeah i mean he's made dozens of movies and half of them most people have probably never even heard of or if you said the name of the movie even if they'd heard of it they wouldn't necessarily know it was hitchcock that did it so yeah um yeah there's a lot of those but um so you've mentioned a few what would you say is one of his best movies that no one ever talks about oh god (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah there are a whole bunch i think the blackmail is is a big one um i i think uh you know some some of the films like 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 i recently rewatched lifeboat uh actually rewatched lifeboat and shadow of a doubt back to back and those people talk about shadow of a doubt more Mm-hmm. but Lifeboat is a really interesting film. Lifeboat is interesting also because it's, um, it is a single, it's a single set uh, film. And, but in contrast to something like Dialing for Murder or Rope, where you have, it's an, they take place in, in apartments. And so the camera has a great deal of fluidity. Lifeboat literally takes place in a lifeboat. And uh, it, among a, a group of people who are uh, stranded together. And it means that the camera has very little fluidity. So almost everything is done in terms of camera work and image is done via close-up and medium shot. And so it's almost this montage-like film uh, that is, it looks different from a lot of, of Hitchcock films because if you watch most of his films, he has a great deal of fluidity with his camera. He uses tracking shots and dolly shots and crane shots and switching angles and all kinds of things. And in Lifeboat, he, he's not able to do that because of the constraints of the, the, uh, the set. So he, it's telling a story in a very, very different way. Um, so I think that Lifeboat, while it's not a great film, I think it's it's more interesting than a lot of people give it credit for. Same thing with Shadow of a Doubt. Shadow of a Doubt is um, one of the best paced films I think that he made, and uh, sets up this this almost vampiric narrative that is so fascinating and so much fun to watch. And Joseph Cotton is just a terrifying presence because he's this combination. You're know, talking about likable villains. He's this combination of sinister and charming. And half the time you're like, I don't know if he is what they think he is or what any of this means. <laughs> uh, and and he, he walks the line on that really, really well. Interesting. There's one movie I really want to talk about because it's one that most people try to cite it as like something different than I think you and I are on the same page about it. And that's Vertigo. Mm. Why don't you tell everyone why they're wrong about Vertigo? Uh, okay, well, I will start out by saying that I think that, that one of the problems that I have with Vertigo is that every time I read about Vertigo, I'm like, oh, it's really interesting. And then I watch Vertigo and I go like, oh, it's really boring. <laughs> yeah. And I, I do think that Vertigo is one of those films that maybe has been not necessarily misread, but the the 
common reading of it, the kind of accepted reading of it, is that we're supposed to identify with and, and support in some way the behavior of Scotty, who's the James Stewart character. Um, I don't think, I think that this is a story about obsession and it's a story about, obs uh, about unhealthy obsession. And it's, that's what it's intended to be. Mm -hmm. It's not a romance. It's not a great love story. This is about a man who is deeply psychologically troubled. And, and because of the events becomes obsessed with this woman. And eventually, I mean, if you look at the Scotty's behavior, none of his behavior is romantic. Mm -mm. His behavior is, is it's stalking. Mm -hmm. It's stalking, it's obsessive, and it's ultimately violent. Yeah. And he forced, you know, so if you don't know the plot of Vertigo, you don't know what's happening. He, he forces this young woman into becoming the image of a woman who died. Uh, and and it, it's shocking and it's horrifying. And so it is this, this story about obsession and violence and, and patriarchal dominance, I think, that is very much not in keeping with the way that many primarily male critics have interpreted it, but also certain feminist critics. Feminist critics have used Vertigo's kind of the, the representation of you know, Hitchcock the patriarch, which I think is a totally legitimate interpretation. But I think that there's also another one, that this is not a film that is about, um, that is about supporting what Scotty is doing, this is about supporting the main character. It's actually about showcasing how violent this is and how dangerous this is and how obsessive his behavior is. It's not a positive representation. So like I say, I don't think it's intended to be a romance. I think it's intended to be a story about a man destroying himself and destroying the woman that he supposedly loves because of his obsessiveness. Mm -hmm. I remember, I mean, the first time I saw it, it was probably back in college and I watched it because it was a famous Hitchcock movie. You know, I was trying to watch all of those. And so I watched it and I agree with you. I thought it was very slow. Um, and some parts of it, I was just like, I'm, did I miss something? Like, I don't know. But I remember when I was reading things about it and people were talking, like, this is years later, because I'd never considered it a romantic movie at all. It, that had never crossed my mind that that was even what it was trying to be. And when I started reading things from people who were putting it on the list of, like, most romantic moments in film or whatever, I was just like, what? what are you talking about? And it's very weird. I mean, it literally opens with a traumatic incident that damages the main character. And mm -hmm. then he spends the rest of the movie trying to turn someone into something she's not. And, and that's part of trying to deal with his damaged psyche. And it's, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know where people went so wrong on their interpretation of the film because I, I never, I'm with you. I never for a minute thought that that was even the direction that Hitchcock was trying to go. And yet people have, have read it this way mm -hmm. for a long time. And, and it's funny because now when people bring up vertigo, I just kind of roll my eyes and they think I hate the movie. I don't hate the movie. I just, I just, I don't love it. It's definitely not one of his best. Um, but it's just so woefully talked about wrong, I think. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that Vertigo deserves a, deserves a different analysis. And, yeah. and the, like I say, the, the dominant 
perspective on it from both male critics and then from feminist critics has been that has been that the, that this is representative of something that is supposed to be positive or that is supposed to be desirable in some level that it's a romance right that it's a doomed love affair or something like that and i don't think that that's true at all and um and i think that it is time to kind of look at vertigo in a very different way and say okay you know, this is one interpretation, and it's a legitimate interpretation, I think, and you can make arguments for it. Um, the other interpretation is that this is about, uh, this is a, a condemnation of, of obsession, and particularly of male obsession and male imposition, and control over women and control over the image. And I think that you can make that argument about this film as well, and that that's an important argument to make also, because like you say, I think that female viewers experience vertigo very differently than male ones do. Um, and I, I may have told the story on here before, but I, I remember when we when um, we talked about Vertigo in a film class on Hitchcock that I took, and there was this whole conversation about you know why cast Jimmy Stewart? Why not cast someone like Cary Grant? Uh, you know why not cast someone like Sean Connery who gets cast cast in Marnie? Mm -hmm. And you know what is it about Jimmy Stewart? And Jimmy Stewart, particularly in this period, is he's middle aged, like he's kind of gaunt, he's kind of, he's not really a leading man, as it were. He's not this attractive figure, particularly. Uh, and, and one of the things that our professor asked the women in the class was like, okay, well, so you have one kind of feeling about Jimmy Stewart, uh, what if they cast Cary Grant? And immediately the women had a different response. <laughs> because, and, and I, th I think that that's, that's part of it, is that the, the men identify at some level with Jimmy Stewart. And they identify with him as this, you know, it's, it's one of those films where I'm like, why the fuck would Kim Novak over Jimmy Stewart? <laughs> uh, she had tons of films. I was just like, why the hell would she do that? Um, <laughs> but, but so the women had a very different reaction to the idea of Cary Grant. Uh, being in the same role and doing the same thing. And I think that, that that's kind of indicative of the way that, that different genders identify with the film and experience the film. The men kind of see it as this, this valorization and this, um, this you know, great romantic story. And the women see it as abuse, essentially. Mm -hmm. And that's what it is. And I, I think that it is abuse. Yeah. And I think it's intended to be viewed that way. That's the thing. I would make that argument. It's intended to be read that way. Yes. Yeah. I completely agree. I think that, I think that there is some misreading of the text of the film and the intent of the film. Yeah. Um, but this leads into another question just in general about um, the ladies of Hitchcock's films <laughs> and the way that they are portrayed on screen. Um we can talk about this, but first of all, just to start, are Hitchcock's films misogynist? No. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> okay, good. All right. So now that we're on the same page. No. You know, I, and again, we've talked about auteur theory on this podcast before. Uh, and, you know, there are all kinds of problems, not with, not just with the theory, but with the way that the theory is used. Um, I'm not a big fan of just applying the, the director's biography to every single film and to every interpretation of a film. Yeah. But I think, so leaving that aside, leaving all of Hitchcock's personal issues aside, which I think he had many, and that is quite obvious, and I am not at all saying that we should excuse that or that we shouldn't talk about it at some point. But if you, if you simply look at his films and interpret his films via close reading, right, understanding them through analysis, 
I think that he creates incredibly strong, incredibly powerful female characters. Uh, that there is this, particularly in, in particularly in some of his earlier films, but even if you go all the way through, if you look at Notorious uh, and Ingrid Bergman and Notorious, if you look at Grace Kelly, who's you know the kind of the quintessential Hitchcock blonde in in films like Rear Window or To Catch a Thief, these are incredibly powerful, self-possessed intelligent and capable women. They're very rarely damsels in distress. They very rarely need to be saved or rescued by anybody. Um, sometimes they do, even Marie Saint in North by Northwest has to be rescued. Um, but these are very dominant personalities and dominant actresses. And even, even someone like Janet Lee, who, uh, you know, famously dies, spoiler alert, uh, <laughs> half an hour into Psycho, but even her presence there. And, and then Vera Miles, who essentially leads the investigation into her sister's disappearance. Yep. Uh, I, th I really do believe that, um, that all of these female characters are, are incredibly powerful ones and that they are much more than I think of what a lot of critics want to make them into. We want to talk about the Hitchcock blonde, but we ignore the fact that the vast majority of Hitchcock's women are not blondes. <laughs> uh, or if they are, they don't really fulfill this, you know, concept of the ice cold blonde who, uh, you know, doesn't really do much of anything. It's just sort of there to be looked at. Mm -hmm. Where did that, that trope of the Hitchcock blonde, like, I mean, we can talk about where it originated, but why do you think it's caught hold and, and people have still latched onto that? I think that it completes a narrative I, because we have this certain narrative about Hitchcock's films and about, um, and, and particularly about Grace Kelly. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and, and there is no doubt, you have the run of like Grace Kelly, Kim Novak, and Tippi Hedren uh, in, in his later films. And... Uh, and kind of the, the, the knowledge that we have about his obsession with, with Grace Kelly in particular, but then also with Tippi Hedren. Um, and kind of that, you know, and some of the things that he said in talking about the ice cold blonde, the ice queen, all of that sort of ideals, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that that's, that's part of where it comes from, but ultimately uh, I don't feel like it's, I, I think that it fulfills a narrative and that people haven't really looked beyond it. Because again, if you look over the course of his films, you don't actually see that many representations of what we are referring to as the Hitchcock blonde. Right. Um, you really have just a small group of films. And, and even then, you know, the, this whole idea about the blonde woman as victim, that's hardly something that Hitchcock invented. And what's more, most of his blondes are particularly victimized. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what are we going, how are we going to tease that out? And, and mo most of the films that people cite are things like Rear Window, um, Psycho, uh, and Vertigo, and, and The Birds slash Marnie. But those are a small portion of his filmography. Yeah, that discounts a whole lot of films and a whole lot of other examples like you've talked about yeah. of women being very capable, women having autonomy in their stories. A lot of the films being focalized through women. Right. Um, you know, so watching Shadow of a Doubt, most of that film is focalized through Teresa Wright, who plays young Charlie. Uh, she's not a blonde, she's a brunette. Uh, and most of the film, most of Notorious is focalized through Ingrid Bergman. 
Mm -hmm. uh, most of suspicion is focalized through Joan Fontaine. Rebecca is, is focalized through Joan Fontaine. You know, you can list all of these films that is uh, Marnie for fuck's sake is focalized <laughs> through Marnie, you know, and that is a problematic film in a lot of ways, but it's still told through her perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think that that's probably the best argument against this whole idea of like, oh, Hitchcock's misogynist or Hitchcock's films are misogynist. I don't know if the man himself is misogynist. I'm not even going to make a statement on that. Um, but his films do not evince any degree of misogyny, in my opinion. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because given the time period that he's making movies, it would have been um, not acceptable, but it would have almost, uh, I don't even know how to describe it, but it, it wouldn't have been surprising, I guess, mm -hmm. to have films that were. I mean, there's a lot of examples from the same time period by other directors where there's things where they're either misogynistic or just um aren't focalized through female perspectives and um and he he was making films that were very that really gave women um um uh, autonomy yeah i was trying to not use that word again because i just used it but uh. yeah <laughs> um yeah exactly and uh to to just really let them run their own stories and and like you mentioned vera miles and psycho and she's ultimately the hero of that film and yeah. um there's a lot of examples like that and it would have been just as easy to have um in just using psychos you know continuing that example it would have been just as easy to have the boyfriend sam be yeah. the one that like solves the murder but he didn't and um i think that there's i think that someone who and of course we don't know we'll never know for sure but i think there's something tells me that it's if someone was inherently misogynist and they have this huge vehicle for making any film that they want and in at a certain point he basically had you know the he could just do what he wanted to do if he were really a misogynist at heart, then I think that his films would have reflected that more. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I, I think that you just have to look at the films of a Brian De Palma to, to kind mm -hmm. of see, see that reinforced. Yeah. Um, and also you do have to say that Hitchcock had worked with women behind the scenes a lot, including his wife, uh, Alma, who was, I mean, she's uh, she's credited, I believe, as assistant director on uh, the Lodger. She uh, she wrote a number of his uh, a number of his screenplays in concert with other people. Um, Joan Harrison produced was his assistant and then produced for him. She produced uh, the the Alfred Hitchcock Presents TV show. So he worked with a lot of female screenwriters, a lot of set dressers, a lot of designers. He worked with Edith Head constantly. Um, he worked, he, he relied on women uh, a lot. And, and I will have to say, and this is again, something that people will tell Hitchcock was totally misogynist. Again, not necessarily going to make a statement on that. However, he always credited his wife. Mm -hmm. um, he very openly said that she was essentially responsible for his career in a lot of ways. Uh, that she read his scripts. She suggested things to him. She suggested Psycho to him. <laughs> Um, so these were all things that like, and he said that openly and he expressed that openly that she was very much one of the driving forces behind his career. And there would be no Alfred Hitchcock as a brand or as a concept without Alma. So, and that was something that he very explicitly stated. Mm -hmm. 
So there you go. Case closed. He was not on the. No. I'm kidding. <laughs> I mean, no. There's all you know. We but could there's talk. Definitely ab- evidence to support that he at least understood and stood by women, and yeah, he definitely was not an innocent flower that <laughs> was always perfect. But who is at this point, really? You know. Yeah. Yeah. His his films are not misogynist, and I I will make that argument to anybody. Yep. <laughs> Well, before we go into the last part that I want to talk about, we do have a couple of questions. Um, the first is from at BC Wallen. Is Farley Granger a bad actor or does he just play nervous roles where he gets overshadowed by the confident men in his life? I don't feel like I can answer that question because, oh, Farley Granger, for those who don't know, he was in Strangers on a Train. Um, he was in... Rope. Rope. Yeah. Um, I've only seen him in those movies, I think. So I don't know enough about his career to know if he was a bad actor or not. I thought he did a great job in Strangers on a Train. So yeah, I don't think Charlie Granger is a bad actor. I, have, I mean, he's not one of those actors that I've followed particularly. I've seen him in other films, and he's very good in them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he may not necessarily be the world's greatest actor, but at least in the Hitchcock films that he does, he plays the roles very well. Yeah. And they're very different parts. Uh, I think he's great in Rope. The 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 two oh, yeah. the combination of him and John Dahl in Rope mm-hmm. is just fantastic. Rope like, it is works such so a good well. movie. It oh, really man. is. If you if you guys haven't seen Rope, go find it and watch it. It's so good. It's so good, and it's really short. It's like an hour and twenty five minutes. Something yeah, I was like say, that. it's like eighty minutes. It's not even. Yeah. it's not even an hour and a half. Yeah, it, it's it's so good, and you know there are times. I very rarely get excited about camera placement, but in that movie, I was like, oh my God, the camera placement is so good. Yeah. I think if it had been longer, it would have actually felt like too much. It's, it's yeah. just the perfect length. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we have another question from at Ian Daly. What's your favorite of his pre-Hollywood films? Mine is Lady Vanishes, but I'm curious as I feel those films are less discussed and seen. Now we did definitely do a lot of talking about those films, but ultimately what is your favorite? Uh, Lady Vanishes. Mm. Yeah, like I said. Um, yeah, I love that. I I think either that one or The Lodger. Yeah. For me. So, yeah, fun. Okay, so the next thing that I want to talk about, and this is kind of going to be where we wrap up, because we've been talking a while. Um, <laughs> but Hitchcock, we know, has influenced Hollywood, continues to influence Hollywood up to today through direct remakes, through films that are inspired by him. There's, you know, certain directors that sometimes get um, slapped with a moniker of like, oh, this is a Hitchcockian film. Mm. So I want to talk a little bit about that and what makes a remake work or a reboot or whatever. What makes it work? What makes it fail? And are there any directors today that you really feel deserve that Hitchcockian label? um so for me as far as remakes go i am of the opinion that remakes of hitchcock films only work if they are basically inspired by his movie but take a completely different spin on it for example Mm -hmm. one of my very very well two of my very very favorites i already mentioned throw mama from the train which is inspired by strangers on a train and it references strangers on a train a lot so it's not a direct remake it's um it's two guys one is a teacher the other is a student 
and uh, it's Danny DeVito and Billy Crystal. And um, Billy Crystal's mom is, or wife, sorry, I'm I was about to get them confused. He's his his ex-wife is like causing him all kinds of problems. Danny DeVito's mom is insane. It's um, Anne Ramsey from the Goonies. <laughs> I love her. Um, anyway, so Danny DeVito gets this idea after seeing strangers on a train to crisscross and murder each other's problematic women in their lives. The movie is hilarious. It's really, really funny. It's really clever and it works. The other one I would say works really well is The Burbs with Tom Hanks Mm. and Carrie Fisher. And it's very much a rear window movie, but it's set in the suburbs on this cul-de-sac somewhere in America. And it's a comedy. Both of those movies are comedies. And I think that that's why they are so effective because they take the inspiration of these Hitchcock films and turn them into something completely different. They're not trying to be Hitchcock movies. Um, so those are two examples that I can think of that work really well. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think that I think that remakes of Hitch. I agree with you. I think that you can't you can't remake a Hitchcock film as Gus Van Sant proved. <laughs> uh, so because first of all, I mean you're 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 working against yourself already because his films are so well known and his films are so beloved in so many ways, and he has such a unique uh, a unique stamp as a director, right? So to say like, well, I'm going to remake Rear Window, it's just like, no, you're not. That's a really stupid idea. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I agree with you when it, when it becomes like a riff on Hitchcock films. I love High Anxiety. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Mel Brooks film, which is literally just an ongoing riff on Hitchcock films. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's funny and it's entertaining. You know, it's not Mel Brooks's best, but it's really, it, there's so much love there. There's so much like adoration of Hitchcock um, that I think works really well. You know, I think that we tend to, to slap Hitchcockian onto anything that vaguely resembles a thriller. Mm-hmm. Um, or that has some kind of... Um not necessarily a plot twist, but like really relies on an element of surprise in some way. Yeah. Like M. Night Shyamalan, I remember in his, or particularly in his early career, kept on getting, you know, they kept on saying, oh, it's his, he's the new Alfred Hitchcock. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, eh, no. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I like, I like something like Hang hey Anxiety, which is, is a parody. Um, I am excited about the new Rebecca <laughs> because First of all, Ben Wheatley is a very different director from Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah. Uh, and second of all, Rebecca is a book. Yes. And it was an adaptation of a novel, that, and Hitchcock did the first adaptation of it. But that's not saying that someone else can't go and do an adaptation. In fact, it's been done several times already. There are several TV movies. There's a TV, like a, a shortened TV show that was about a 50-minute adaptation. There's a very good miniseries that's an adaptation of Rebecca. Um, so there's no reason why, you know, this, it it could be a good adaptation, it could be a bad adaptation, but I don't think that there's a need to then say like, well, let's compare it to the Hitchcock film. No, let's not compare it to the Hitchcock film. Mm -hmm. First of all, because it's not fair to compare one filmmaker's move to another's necessarily. And, and it isn't a remake of a Hitchcock film. It's an adaptation of a book that Hitchcock also, also adapted. Exactly. Uh, 
so yeah so i i think that you know we always have to be careful and i, I think that any director who goes like oh, i'm totally going to remake a hitchcock film is sort of working against themselves but at the same time it's like okay let's let's see what happens mm -hmm. how are you gonna do it yeah yeah but my my real main feeling on it is just if you're going to attempt it make sure that it's something different another film yeah. that I think actually worked really well. It's another rear window inspired story and that's Disturbia with Shia yeah. LaBeouf, which is silly and goofy and it's, it's not funny. It's not a comedy, but um, I think that that one actually worked really well too, because it takes the story and it, it change, it adapts it in a different way. It's, it's trying to do, do something fresh. It's not like, I think the ones like Gus Van Sant Psycho, the ones that, try to just um remake his vision they don't work because first of all we've already seen it done really really well i mean even people who are averse to watching uh old movies are willing to watch hitchcock movies yeah so um so yeah i think that that's where um that's I just lost my train of thought in the middle of my <laughs> sentence. Oh my gosh. But yeah, I think that's where people go wrong is when they just try to straight up remake Hitchcock because there's yeah. no need. And there have been attempts. Um, I think that, I mean, I'm trying to think besides, um, besides psycho, I'm trying to think of some other examples. I think that um, there are two there versions was... of the lady vanishes that yes. were remade. Uh, one, I think both of them are TV movies. Um, one is is with I think Sybil Shepherd and Elliot Gould, which is the weirdest <laughs> fucking pairing, and Angela Lansbury, uh, and it's the weirdest fucking pairing I've ever watched. It is not a good film, but it is fascinatingly bad. Uh, and there's another one I think that was done by the BBC or ITV or something like that. That's a British uh, British version. There, there's a. Uh, a version of Rear Window, again, again I think it was a with TV With Christopher movie. Reeve. With mm -hmm. Christopher Reeve, yeah. Um, so there have been a few. Yeah. I a think lot there of was one, um, a Dial M for Murder remake, um, with, what was it called? With, um, uh, oh, the, Paltrow. Yeah, The Perfect Murder. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, that uh, one was okay. And then, of course, there's Mission Impossible 2. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a remake of Notorious. Yes, it is. <laughs> and like to the extent that they lifted whole sections of dialogue. <laughs> and I remember watching Mission Impossible 2 and being like, I this looks familiar. recognize this. I feel like I've <laughs> seen this before or heard it before. And then there's like a line that Anthony Hopkins says. And I was like, holy fuck, this is Notorious. <laughs> Yeah, I'm trying to think. I guess there definitely there is a line that's straight out of Notorious. Um, the, yeah. the conversation, I think, the scene between Anthony Hopkins and, it's and when he's trying to convince Tom Cruise to take her on, take yeah, the, Tandy Newton on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and the it's almost verbatim. It's like I say, it's almost entirely lifted from <laughs> Notorious, and it is the weirdest thing because you're like, why is Mission Impossible doing Notorious? <laughs> And I watched that entire film, like, this movie is notorious. Why is this movie notorious? <laughs> what is happening? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it happened. Very um, odd. Yeah.
but yeah there have been some that work and some that don't and just watch hitchcock's movies but also mission impossible 2 is not actually that bad because it's notorious (laughs) (laughs) Um, okay Uh (laughs) no i i think that there are a lot of other movies that are way worse than that i yeah yes that is true um but anyway uh (laughs) so yeah um rebecca is coming to netflix soon and it's gonna be really interesting to see how that plays out i really agree with you i think that this is not a remake of a hitchcock film it's an uh, it's another adaptation. i can't talk now it's a new adaptation of daphne du maurier's book and i think it'll be interesting i don't think it's unfair to compare how wheatley and hitchcock adapt the story i think it will be unfair to wheatley if everyone just says oh he's just remaking hitchcock's book or movie so Mm -hmm. um yeah it'll be interesting to see how it plays out it the they just yesterday released first look photos from it and i have to say it looks gorgeous yeah so and i'm not just talking about army hammer and lily james (laughs) It really I, looks like a beautiful movie. So I I'm think excited. we're just going to have to wait and see. And and like I say, because there's there's some things that Hitchcock had to leave out of the film or change in the film because of censorship. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it'll be interesting to see if Wheatley can actually if Wheatley adds those things back in. I think it'll be a, a, an interesting and and in some ways a more dynamic film. I feel like he will. One of the yeah. nice things about Netflix even more than any other studios is that they they are pretty hands-off with directors and they'll just kind of let them like okay here's your budget have fun and um they let they let their filmmakers make the movies that they really want to and i feel Mm -hmm. like if ben wheatley's adapting this story there's a reason and it's again not just to remake a hitchcock film it's because there's something about rebecca that he wants to take a crack at and um wow that was a really weird sentence (laughs) 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 but um, yeah i wrote a bunch of tweets yesterday it's just like when hitchcock did rebecca i was like wait (laughs) yeah Um, wait a minute wait 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 (laughs) but uh but yeah i think it'll be really interesting to see um what he adds into the story that was forced to be left out was just left out based on style choices that kind of thing so yeah 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 definitely we don't have a release date on that yet but it's coming very soon i know that so anyway um yeah so is there anything else that you would like to say about the work of hitchcock that we haven't covered yet <laughs> there i i don't want to we've already gone pretty long we um need to save it for your book that you're gonna <laughs> write eventually uh the only thing that i wanted uh, the only thing that i think that we haven't addressed is is frenzy which i'm not yes. going to go long on frenzy is um i actually think we had a question on frenzy that i didn't put on there but it, the question was is frenzy a giallo and uh for anyone who does not know what a giallo film is please go look it up it's an italian form of horror uh, but Frenzy is, is, I think, one of really one of his most interesting films in the sense that it, it, it is his next to last film, uh, and it is also it also represents his return to Britain. He went back, and it's a British cast and uh, British financing, etc. He goes, he returns to Britain, and he makes this this movie, which is a wrong man movie, but is about uh, a a pretty violent uh, rapist 
who murders women with a necktie. And it is probably Hitchcock's most explicit film. Uh, you actually, there actually is one sequence that you, that is a rape, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's very disturbing. It's very well shot, actually. <laughs> um, but it is, it's an incredibly disturbing film. It's an incredibly dark film. But one of the issues that we were talking about earlier is this issue of, of forcing the audience to identify with the villain. And a large section of Frenzy is focusing on the villain. You know who the killer is pretty early on. Uh, because you, you witness his murders and, and you follow both him and the guy who's accused of the murders um, in, almost in tandem with each other. And one of the things that Hitchcock does is he creates this very charming and distressingly likable killer, uh, which is incredibly disturbing given the degree of violence with which he murders people, murders women. And he also creates this hero who is incredibly unlikable and nasty. And so you've got, I think, a, co- a combination of some of Hitchcock's concerns and some of the ways that he turns these elements around on the audience. It says like, okay, here is sort of the natural uh, progression of this kind of identification. You're now going to identify with this abhorrent killer. And there's even an entire sequence where, um, where a woman that the killer murders uh, rips off his tie pin and he realizes that he's lost this tie pin. And so he has to, he's hidden her body in a potato truck. And so he has to go and find the tie pin that is like clasped in her hand. And it's this funny, funny sequence. Like it's actually very funny. It's, it's comedy. And at the same time, you know what this man has done. You feel sympathy for him. You feel concern for him because he's trying to get back this piece of evidence. And it's a question of like, is he going to be caught or not? And at the same time, you are aware of how vile and terrible he is. And, and so it's, it is a fascinating film. And I, I hesitate to recommend it to people because it is so disturbing for that reason. Um, but I think it's, it's a, it is a combination of a lot of Hitchcock's concerns. And I, don't, and I think that some of this really is about forcing the audience to question what they enjoy and who they sympathize with and why they sympathize with them. Um, so yeah, fren- Frenzy, the, the one-two punch of Frenzy and then Family Plot, and Family Plot is just this silly, entertaining heist movie. Uh, I'm very glad that he did not end his career on Frenzy. I'm glad that he ended his career on Family Plot. But it is, both of those films, I think, represent the culmination of a career. It is not, you know, a slow tapering off. It is, he really did make two final films that are everything that he had put into into all of his other films and taken to, to a logical extent. Uh, so yeah, that was, that was the last thing that I wanted to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's a perfect note to end on. Um, yeah. So listeners, why don't you let us know what are some of your favorite Hitchcock films? And also what is a film that you have decided you're going to go watch because Lauren was talking about it. <laughs> so, because um, I, I would love to know what films you've been inspired to to finally go see based on uh, based on this episode. Yeah. So I know I've got a few I need to go watch too. Um, I've never seen Lifeboat. I'm gonna find that one. I'm gonna watch it. Do it. And Blackmail too. Do it. So thank you. <laughs> um, yeah. So, okay. Well, thank you so much for sticking with us for this extra long, but I thought it was a really fun episode. Um, I did not fall asleep. 
<laughs> well, I didn't explain why the skin game is actually a great film. So, uh, I got another hour. <laughs> no, I wouldn't subject anyone to that. It's a difficult <laughs> argument. Like, I'm sorry. Like, oh, yes, Lauren, do you want to tell us about your esoteric obsessions with, with specific Hitchcock films that no one watches anymore? Yes, I would. <laughs> well, we would like to thank our patrons for supporting the show and uh, maybe eventually helping finance Lauren's book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so special shout out to Heather, Adriana, The Crooked Table Podcast, Michael, Jacob, James, Katie, Cariata, Mason, Matthew, Michelle, Monty, Nanina, Nicole, Robert, Sharon, Steve, Tao, and Will. Thank you so much for supporting us. If you would also like to become a patron and support the show and help us keep the lights on, that is patreon.com slash citizen dame. We also have our Zazzle store, zazzle.com slash citizen dame pod, where you can get t-shirts, face masks. I promise I'm going to add a couple more designs this week. I got some fun ideas, so um, I'm going to work on that. Uh, we also have our Ko-Fi account, which is co-fi.com slash citizen dame if you would like to kick us a couple of dollars, but you don't uh, want to make a commitment. Totally fine and awesome. And we appreciate people who've done that. Um, we also would love it if you'd reach out to us. We have lots of different ways to do that. We've got our Twitter and Instagram are at Citizen Dame Pod. We are sometimes on Facebook, facebook.com slash Citizen Dame. Uh, you can email us directly, citizendamepod at gmail.com. And be sure to check out our website, citizendamepod.com, where I'm sure we're going to be having some fun new content very soon. Yes. It's been a busy time. It I know it been. seems like it's not, but it is. It's really busy. Um, yeah. So, uh, Lauren, where can people find you outside of Citizen Dame? I am on Twitter and Instagram at LHBusiness. And I am on Twitter and Instagram at Karen M. Peterson. So thank you so much for listening. Be sure to share with your friends. Um, also, if you haven't done so, maybe you're in the mood to give us a little reading, review, and help boost our profile. So yeah, that would be cool too. Um, but yeah, thanks so much. We'll catch you next time. Bye. Reservations for lunch, please. Madame has booked for lunch. Oh, I think my friend did. She's got the ticket. Have you seen my friend? No. Um, my friend, where is she? La Signora Inglese, the English lady, where is she? There has been no English lady here. What? There has been no English lady here. There has. She sat there in the corner. You saw her. You spoke to her. She sat next to you. But it's ridiculous. She took me to the dining car and came back here with me. You went and came back alone. Maybe you don't understand. I mean the lady who looked after me when I was knocked out. Ah, perhaps it's maker you forget, eh? Well, I may be very dense, but if this is some sort of a joke, I'm afraid I don't see the point. 